you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament, and then all the way to the last chapter, chapter 28, and almost the last verse, verse 18. And uh, we'll read that here in a moment. But our focus this morning is two ordinances. If you've looked in the bulletin and seen the title of the message, that is our focus. You've already witnessed one of those, that's baptism. And uh, I suppose you don't get to see what goes on behind the scenes, but there's a lot of scrambling to get from wet in a robe to back in here in a suit. Uh, It seems like it went really fast. But later we have the Lord's table as well, also known as communion or the Lord's supper. And then before we conclude this service, we're going to welcome new members uh, into our, our faith family. And the question this morning is, what do these things mean? Why do we do these things? Uh, from different perspectives, one who perhaps is a visitor attending as part of the family of someone who is part of this service in some way. Or let's just say someone who walks in with no background at all as to what church is or an understanding of the Bible uh, or having grown up in a Christian home. These things would seem somewhat odd. What, what is this that they're doing? What does it mean? Why do they do it? And uh, for a service like this where we'll do two of these together, even with new members, that'd be three things. What do they have in common? And the reason why I mention all this, and I try to be careful to do so, is that because for those of us where these things are familiar, we've, we've observed communion a number of times, if not maybe a hundred times, or seen baptism, been baptized ourselves, uh, that because of the familiarity of it, they can become old hat. And then maybe we not only quit asking ourselves the question, what is this, why are we doing it, what does it mean, but maybe we don't even think through those things anymore. And that would be a loss because of the significance of what these things really mean. Now, we have definitions for them, and there are likely uh, entire seminary courses on the background and the meaning of these things we do today. But one definition that I think would work for us would suffice. It's simplistic enough, although we'll expand on it in the next few minutes. Is this. If someone were to ask, why do you do these things? Our answer could be, because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, and because of what he has asked us to do. Who he is, what he's done for us, and in response, what he's asked us to do. Those are three things. So we'll start with number one. Who is Jesus? Most of us in this room should know the answer to that question. And that question was part of the confession that these ladies made before their baptism. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son. That's who Jesus is. That's quite a statement, too. Uh, Mentioned, I believe, last week, some of the things that we believe and hold most dear as Christians uh, to the rest of the world, even to ourselves at times, may seem quite incredible. 
A lot of the world has a hard time believing in such a thing as a God, that he even exists. To take that further and say that that God had a son whose name was Jesus, who he sent to earth to take on human form, to die on a Roman cross in order to pay for the sins of the world that the Father himself had promised to punish. That's quite a story. But that's what the Bible claims. That's what the Bible teaches is true. So part of this that we do today has everything to do with whether or not we believe who Jesus is. The Bible's a big book, and there's a lot to say about Jesus, Old and New Testament. Some would consider it an accomplishment to read through the whole thing in just a year. We have one-year Bibles, and we try hard to get through it in a year. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Some of us never have, some of us have many times. But if you start in Genesis, you'll read the, the account of creation. That's where everything we know that is came to be. And on the sixth day, God created man and woman. And he made them different than all the rest of the animals. He gave them his image. And they were to represent him and glorify him as bearing his image. And just to make sure that they had the choice to be able to choose a relationship with him. Because he had created them. They're his creation. But he wants a meaningful relationship with them. So he gives them the ability to choose whether or not they want to do that. Kind of like the ability of your spouse to choose whether or not they want to be with you makes it a, a better relationship, don't you think? If they were only in love with you because you made them that way, maybe it would be different. But they had choice. And what symbolizes that choice is one commandment not to do. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you will die. That was the deal. That's the way the Bible sets up the story. This is where we learn in the Bible that sin is a payment or a penalty for death. You've heard the New Testament scripture for the wages of sin is death. And if there were not sin, there'd be no reason for death. God did not create his creation to live for a period of time and then die. That was a punishment for disobedience. And ever since that's been in existence that's the way we understand it to be we have funerals all the time and we're very familiar with death we're born we age we grow old we die that is because of our fallenness and because of God's curse on sin the wage of sin the punishment for disobedience to God is death and not just physically but also spiritually not just on this earth but in eternity now, the Gospel of John is where we start to make sense of a lot of these things that are somewhat veiled in the Old Testament. The Gospel of John, which is the fourth book, if you were to turn over, stay right there in Matthew. We'll look at that in a second. John the Baptist is going to introduce Jesus, God's Son, to the world publicly out in the desert as he'd been baptizing people. And he'd been talking for a long time that he's just the front runner of the Messiah. And when he's finally there and he introduces him, he introduces him as the Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Think of it that way. The Lamb of God. Lambs in the Old Testament were used as sacrificial animals. If you had sinned, you would purchase a lamb at least once a year, and then you would hand that over to the priest. They would kill that animal, cut its throat, its blood would spill... 
And that would cover your sins for a period of time. That's how sin was dealt with in the Old Testament. This is going to be quite different. John is describing Jesus as God's lamb sent to earth as the final sin sacrifice to pay not just for Christ's sins because he didn't have any, but to pay for the sins of the world. As the story continues, we see that we've answered now the second question. Not just who is Jesus, but what has he done? He came to this earth to die in our place. Because Jesus was God's son, he was sinless, right? He's fully human and fully God at the same time, but the fully God aspect of him means he cannot sin. He lived a sinless life. He did what Adam and Eve and everybody since them have never been able to do, and that is keep a sinless, perfect relationship with the Father. He did. We have not. Because Jesus was God's Son and was sinless and obeyed his Father in perfection, then his own people, the Jews, see to it that he was crucified on a Roman cross. His father would accept Christ's death at the hands of the men he created as payment for the sins of any who would trust him by faith. Now, let's just make sure we got all this together, okay? And I'm, there's a point to where I'm going with all this. Jesus had not sinned, and having obediently accomplished the work his father sent him to do, he died on a cross. Now, what is death? Payment for sin. Did Jesus sin? No. So is it fair that he die? No. That's why on the morning of the third day, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead because death had no claim on him. Does that make sense? And any who trust him by faith, that he is their sin sacrifice, their Lord and Savior, God the Father applies what he did to that person's account. And having been paid for, death has no claim on them either. You might attend their funeral, their bodies will grow old and die, but not eternally. For them, the story is not the end, it's to be continued. You will see them again. We will see each other. Now what I've just explained to you is the gospel. It's who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And because of what Jesus did, because of who he is, there's some things that he asked us to do in response to this. And the two of those we study this morning are baptism and the Lord's Supper. We do this in a response because he's asked us to do them. Why do we do these things? Because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, and because of what he's asked us to do. Baptism, communion, and church membership make absolutely no sense if not for what Jesus is and what he's done, would you say? It'd be a waste of time here this morning. I would have got into my fishing waders and into that pool for no reason. The testimonies that you heard, that emotions signaled their meaning, would be meaningless if Jesus was not who he is and he had not done what he has done. So in these ways, we do things in response to it. Look at the verse I ask you to turn to. This is Matthew 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Seems fitting for who he is and what he's done. 
He not only created the world, but he died for their sins. So he's been given all authority. And here's what he says with authority in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as we've done this morning, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what we do here in this church week by week. And membership is a big important part of that. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We continue these until he comes back. So we see clearly that he's asked us to do this. That at least makes sense. Baptize disciples of all nations. So what is it we're doing when we baptize someone? What are they doing? Well, it's basically a confession of faith in Christ. And you heard their confession from their mouth. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I trust Him as my Lord and Savior. That's why these ladies not only read their testimony, but answered verbally their confession. The picture itself of being submerged under the surface of the water signifies a death, a burial underwater, and a resurrection when you bring them back up. And not their Christ's burial and resurrection, but their burial and resurrection in His likeness. Death to the old man that they were before Christ saved them. And resurrection to a new life now that they've been newborn or reborn or born again. Or just plain old saved, if you want to call it that. That's what's happened. Now here's what I think helps me with these things. To put them in the form of a question. Uh, actually, the way they do on the TV program where you, you, you mix them up. So baptism answers this question. How does the church know who belongs to Jesus? That's why we do baptism. So you'll know. Today you know that there are two more people in this church that confess Jesus is the Son of God and they trust Him as their Lord and Savior. You heard their confession. So now you know better who in this room belongs to Jesus. It's our ability to wave the flag. I'm now a Christ representative. He's changed my life through the new birth experience. This is how we know these things. If we never did, and especially if it's a big church, you may never know. You never get to hear their confession. But if anybody ever comes to you and asks you if Missy or Campbell are Christians, well, now you know the answer. They've confessed Christ, and I heard it. That's what baptism is for. Now, what about the Lord's table? And we do this here in just a few minutes. This is from Luke twenty-two nineteen. You probably have heard this already. But it says simply, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we'll read this again, quoted by Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians here in just a few moments. But much like the Passover in the Old Testament, uh, communion is a way to remember something. Do you remember the Ten Commandments, the movie? And right before they left the next morning for Egypt, you've got the family gathered eating bitter herbs and these things considered parts of Passover. It was to force them to remember that God was delivering them from bondage. And they would teach their children this generation after generation so that they never would have what happened later 
say in the book of Judges, and the people. There arose a generation that knew not the God of their fathers. Well, they stopped remembering. They stopped teaching. So for generations, that's what it was for. A way that they could eat and smell and touch and see and even hear when they recited Scripture. Reminders of who God is and what He has done, right? That's what communion is. And it was Passover until Jesus modified it somewhat in the upper room before His death. And every time we do it, when we pass around these little pieces of bread that will not fill you up, the meal afterward is for that. Or these little cups of juice that will not quench your thirst. They're a reminder of the Lord's broken body. They're a reminder of the Lord's shed blood. So when we do this, it's for a remembrance. Here's another question. Communion answers. What helps the church maintain its identity? Who is the church? Christians who trust Jesus for who He is and what He's done. And they look at Him to be their Savior and their Lord. So to remember this as often as we do it. The broken body and the blood that paid for our sins. You see where the, the gospel makes sense of all this? It's exactly what it's for. Every time we do this, we remember. These things are not something that men made up. Both of them are right here in the pages of Scripture. They weren't made just so we would have something to do. Because church services would be boring if we did them every week, so every now and then we need to throw in a baptism and a Lord's Supper or something like that. That's not the purpose of this. And we should also note that neither baptism or the Lord's Supper is a saving ordinance. Some believe that it is. We don't believe that it is based on Scripture. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to take communion to be saved. They are not salvific, in other words. But they are commanded that you do them after you've been saved. The reason why we don't think that this is necessary for salvation is because of a man we, have, we know not his name but he was crucified beside Christ he repented and Jesus said today you will be with me in paradise and he did not have time for baptism or the Lord's Supper baptism wouldn't be invented till later as the church would do it Christ gave it to us but it would be done later in time so unless you're a thief on a cross I suggest that you be obedient to baptism and the Lord's Supper you have time where he didn't. Now remember I told you these are signs. Outward signs of something going on on the inside of us. That's what Augustine chose to explain them. Outward visible signs of inward and spiritual graces. These things we're doing today signify something. They point to something. That's what a sign does. Right? You've got signs in your yard there are signs on the road, and I use this uh, to, as an example months ago when we did communion before, and I thought we've likely got some guests, and maybe this will help you see it, put it together. But at exit 312 off I-40, there's a sign that says Fuquay Arena. And I passed that sign, I couldn't tell you how many times, traveling back and forth to the beach. As I grew up, we would vacation on Oak Island. And if it was a good year, we'd go three, four times instead of one or two. 
And when I became old enough to drive myself, I would pass it. And for the longest time, all it meant to me was that now you've got Raleigh and traffic behind you. And it's clear sailing until you get to the next exit you're interested in for the Brunswick County beaches. I think it was Castle Hain. Now they've got 140 and it's a little different route. But f- I had absolutely no understanding of what Fuquay Varina was. That it was actually two cities at one time. Uh, that it had a group of people like you and a church like Wake Chapel. I never thought in a million years I'd be standing here talking to you in Fuquay Varina. So what I'm saying is that I was familiar with the sign but had no idea what it meant. And there are people who've been in churches maybe all their lives who are very familiar with baptism. Yeah, that's when people, after they get saved, they get wet and then maybe they'll join the church. Or communion. That's some things we pass around. We ask forgiveness for sins before we do it so we don't get into trouble. And then it's usually a longer service, but then we go home. And we'll do it again in three months. Those things mean something. They signify something more significant than themselves. There's not much significant about these little pieces of bread and this grape juice. Or getting wet on a Sunday. But what they point to is God's Son, who He is and what He's done. And in doing these things, we rehearse in our lives the thing we are hanging our eternity on. You couldn't assign more worth or value to something than what baptism and communion really mean. Now we're going to transition over into communion. And uh, we are going to observe communion. And we're going to leave the last question. What is church membership? What does it mean and why do we do it until afterward? Uh, We'll hold that off while we do communion. But let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts for what we are about to do. I'm going to call our ushers to join me on the platform here. But let me at least say this to you. Wake Chapel does not observe closed communion. That is, only members of Wake Chapel are allowed to participate. We observe close communion. That is, anyone in this room who confesses Jesus Christ as God's Son and are trusting in Him to be their Lord and Savior, you are very welcome to participate with us. Now, if you've got children who are too young to understand what these things mean, well, then it's easier just to let that plate pass by. There will be time where we hope they will understand it, and it'll mean something then. But until now, it's probably best just to let it pass away. Or someone, this is all new to you, you've never heard of any of this before, probably also better to just let it pass. There are places in Scripture that warn us not to do this unworthily because that's minimizing the value of what this is supposed to be. This is important. So we're going to have a few minutes for you to to pray, confess your sins, examine yourselves as the Scripture says so that we take it worthily. And in a few moments then we'll partake of these elements. David Spivey is going to pray over the bread. Father, as we prepare to take this bread, I pray that your Holy Spirit will lead us to pause, search our hearts, and confess that sin that separates us from you. And remember, Lord, that this is 
and that we remember that this is the representation of the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again so that we may live forever with you. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, as we receive this cup, help us realize the significance of this symbol of Jesus Christ's spilled blood that was poured out for us for the remission of our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the new covenant that we live in today. Again from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this time verse 25, In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. He says, For as oft as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Again, it has been done as the Lord commanded. Would you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these new members, for their families and friends that are here, for our visitors, and for each one present on this special day. With hearts overflowing with joy, we give thanks to you for your abundant grace and mercy new to us each day and for your providence that saw fit for these new members to join. During this service, we've seen a glimpse of what heaven may look like and our hearts are encouraged. Father, all that we have has come from your gracious hand, including this meal that we'll soon enjoy. Thank you for those who have labored and loved to prepare it. We ask your blessing on it. Bless it to nourish our bodies so that we'll have strength to proclaim your gospel. May all we do be for your glory alone. All these things we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.